0: My name is Mark. And uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Center. It's great to welcome you here. And uh, it's great to see some new faces. I've, uh, I'm relatively new here myself, so and, you know, I, I see people's faces. Everyone was new to start off with. And then I forget who they are anyway. So if I've introduced myself to you more than once, my apologies. Um, but uh, yeah, it's genuinely good to see people here uh, for the first time. And uh, we hope that you're enjoying the meeting. And continue to enjoy the meeting. I've been preaching over the summer on the theme of the kingdom of God and uh, it really came from uh, when we had a conference earlier on in spring and uh, David Devonish came over. He preached the conference on the kingdom of God and uh, we just felt it was important to keep pressing into some of these themes and so we've looked at a number of different themes over the last few months every time I've been preaching and uh, Uh, That's what we're going to continue to do uh, today. Many of us will have known the Lord's Prayer. Um, I grew up learning the Lord's Prayer at home, and at school we used to learn it as well. And in that, in the Lord's Prayer, is the line in Matthew uh, chapter six and uh, verse ten, which is, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." So we've been looking at what what does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean for God's kingdom to come on earth? as it is in heaven, and uh, today we're going to look at what God's kingdom coming means in the area of justice. Justice. Now, justice is something that we all know is very important. It's often expressed by children at a very young age. Um, Their earliest words will be mama, dada, it's not fair. Uh, we We can all think back to how we have experienced injustice in our lives. Now, I, I was thinking back this morning to a time when I'd experienced injustice in my life, and it went back to when I was at school, at elementary school, and I had a teacher, and uh, my teacher was called Mrs. Lister. Mrs. Lister. Now, my parents are here today. My mom's nodding. She remembers Mrs. Lister too. Probably not with as much fear and dread as I do, but Mrs. Lister. And Mrs. Lister, I'm sure she was lovely, but she really didn't like me. She really didn 't like it. I kept finding myself in her class in her homeroom, and um, she, she was vicious, really. She would come up and i 'm sure she 's passed away now. Um, <laughs> but she 's <was laughs> not going to be listening to this anyway, so I, I could just slander her all I like. <laughs> no i 'm just working it out. you know you 've got to work these things out. Mrs. Lizzi. <laughs> used to come up behind me. She had a big engagement ring. She used to hit me on the back of the head with this <laughs> engagement ring because I was, yeah, she was, you see, you're on my side now. You're getting there. <laughs> what? <laughs> and uh, she, I remember the worst time was when she stood up in front of the whole uh, homeroom and she said, she said, do you know what? This whole class, their behavior has deteriorated it's just got worse and worse. It's terrible. The work is getting worse. And she goes, And you know, it all began with Mark Rushworth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, What? What have I done? True story. <laughs> Mrs. Lister. Whew. The worst thing, I had to, I had to go back when I, w- I became a teacher and I had to go and do some teaching practice and I got sent to the school I used to be at and she was still there. I was like, no. <laughs> but the, but, but she, <laughs> she's still there. <laughs> she can't be. <laughs> injustice, injustice. I felt that was grave injustice and I'm still feeling it, as you can tell. Injustice is where someone uses their power against someone else without cause, unfairly. That's what injustice is. And there's no one else to turn to. You know, I was powerless against Mrs. Lister. She was nice to me sometimes. But on this occasion, I was powerless against Mrs. Lister. Because she was the teacher. And I was just a grade four student. But all around the world, people are crying out for justice. People are crying out for justice, and if they don't get that justice, their lives are blighted. Injustice happens when people with power use that power to deny others of the basic, fundamental things of life. And people are powerless in the face of it. And there's always been issues of injustice in our societies, from racial discrimination sexual discrimination, unfair distribution of wealth and food, unequal access to basic health care and education, and slavery. Slavery. Many people would consider that slavery ended in the 1800s and through people like Abraham Lincoln, and in the UK through the campaigning of Christians like William Wilberforce and, uh, and what he did through Parliament. And it's true, they did achieve much, but did you know that today, there are an estimated 36 million slaves in the world. That's the low end. People say it could be more. But 36 million slaves in the world. That's the same population as Canada, and they're slaves. Imagine just being seven years old, orphaned and alone, the only family you've ever known, has sold you off to a brick kiln owner, a harsh man who yells at you as you go and work, transporting bricks from one part of his, uh, his facility to another. This man yells at you, ignores you, forces you to wake up before the sun and join dozens of adults twice your size in a long day's labor of molding, hauling, stacking heavy clay bricks. You're confused. You're terrified. You don't even know you're a slave because you're only a child. This is the life of Kumar, who was in India, and the story of millions of other children across the world and families in the developing world today. Month after month of forced labor left Kumar's tiny hands scarred and raw. He desperately wanted to be in a school, to make friends, to play, to feel loved, to just be a boy. He was literally afraid to think about his future, he later said, so he never did. There was only the work, day after day after day, and the harsh fists of his owners to keep him moving. And Kumar is just one slave, one of what's estimated to be nearly 12 million slaves in India alone. Just to be clear, one-third of the world's slaves are estimated to live in India. 12 million people who are made in God's image but have been reduced to a thing, a non-person, a slave. And that's just one area of slavery. Conservative estimates say there are anywhere between 4.2 million and up to 11.6 million people held in forced commercial sexual exploitation. Many, many different areas of slavery in the world today, we could tell you lots of stories. And for us, if something unjust is happening, exploitative, criminal, we can pick up a phone, we can call the police, and we can be pretty sure they're going to be on our side. But that's just not the case in many places. Even closer to home, factors like the color of our skin might affect how we get received. There's a book an excellent book called uh, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. He says this, he tells this story, uh, he recounts this story told by an urban pastor, Robert uh, Linthicum, and he says this, as a student ministry intern, he'd been working among black teenagers in a government housing project in a US city. A 14-year-old girl named Eva began to attend one of the Bible studies that he led in the project. At one point, Eva came to him deeply troubled. Bob, she said, I'm, I'm under terrible pressure and I don't know what to do. There's a very large gang in this project that recruits girls to be uh, prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. They're trying to force me. Robert urged them not to give in to their demands and stick with her Bible study group, but then he went home for his summer vacation. He says, three months later I returned and Eva was nowhere to be found. The other youth told me she'd stopped coming about a month after I left. I went to Eva's apartment As soon as she saw me, she burst into tears. They've got to me, Bob, she said. How could you give in like that? I unsympathetically responded. Why didn't you resist? She told me a story of terror. First, they told me they beat my father, and they beat him bad. I had no alternative, so I gave in. But Eva, I said, why didn't you get protection? Why didn't you go to the police? Eva responded, who do you think they are? We may not like to hear stories like that. We might even question them. We might find them difficult to believe. Even here in Fredericton, I've heard stories of people from First Nations communities thanking a member of the police for not beating them up when they took them in for questioning, because that's what their previous experience had been. But in many, many countries around the world where there's much injustice, it's not the case that there are no Police forces. It's not the case that there's no justice systems. It's that they're corrupt. It's that they're easily bought off. Possibly because they're getting paid so little themselves or they've not had the training that they need and they get bribed. And they end up using their power to oppress and steal people's freedom and dignity rather than protect and restore. Globally, there are 4 billion people out of 7 billion living on the earth who are living outside of the protection of the law. It's pretty sobering. So what does God have to say about all this? Does he care? Well, the answer is, even as we've been hearing this morning, a resounding yes. Justice is something that's very much on God's heart. It's one of the ways God identifies himself to us. As I introduced uh, as I stood up just now, I introduced myself. I said, I'm Mark Rushworth. I'm one of the leaders here of the church at Christ Central. And so we often announce who we are to others by what we do. I'm one of the leaders. So it's incredibly significant that the Bible describes God in Psalm 68, verse 5, as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. That's what he does. They were the vulnerable people in the the society, when the Bible was written, God says, I'm a father of the fatherless. He identifies with the powerless. He takes up their cause. Psalm 33 and verse 5 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. God cares about how we live. God cares about how we treat others. And we can look out at the world and be forgiven for thinking, well, injustice, it just looks rampant. Four, you know, Four billion people outside of the protection of the law? Well, what's going on? Jeremiah looked out at the world and he complained, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Or another translation would say, why do all the treacherous thrive? These are questions we might ask every single time we look at the news. Like Jeremiah, we might, we might think, well, God just can't care. Yet God is a God of justice. He cares passionately about those who are oppressed. And he calls on his people to care and act too. A few verses on in Jeremiah, God commands his people to administrate his justice on the earth. He says, administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 say, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And most famously in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And there are many, many other verses in the Bible which talk about the same thing where God expresses his heart for justice and for the needy and he asks his people to engage as well. God commanded in his law of jubilee, just in the Old Testament law, that every 50 years the debts were to be wiped clean. All debts to be wiped clean. All slaves were to be set free after 50 years. So that people were not born into slavery. People weren't born into families who were just in this unpayable debt. This cycle of debt. And so they were always going to be slaves. And so the slavery would continue and continue and continue. And God said no. It's got to end. We wipe it clean. But yet so often, so often, it didn't happen. God's people didn't represent his character in bringing justice. There's actually no evidence that the law of Jubilee was ever put into effect. So God instigated it. There's no evidence it ever happened. God's people didn't do it. And today, millions of people are born into slavery. And it's only by chance that we weren't. But maybe for many today, justice isn't seen as a high priority. Let's have a look at Isaiah 58, because this is the Old Old Testament passage that sums up pretty much where God's people were at at the time. Isaiah 58, and we're going to read the first 12 verses here. This will give you an idea. This is God speaking to his people. He says this. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Just point out, this isn't a people who don't want anything to do with God. This isn't a people who don't want anything to do with God. They're a people who, day after day, seem eager to know God's ways, seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not yet noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, God says, you do as you please and exalt, exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in a sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? then God says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. And you'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Well, let me just speak about this passage for a little while. Because the context of this passage the, is the Day of Atonement. So the Israelites, they related to God through obedience to his law. God had given his law to people. This is how it's to be set out. You read it about, You can read about it in the early chapters of the Bible. Um, but God knew they couldn't do it perfectly. They couldn't stick to his ways perfectly. Everyone fell short. Everyone fell short of God's perfect standards. And this creates a barrier between us and God. And it created a barrier between God and his people. And so once a year... The high priest offered a blood sacrifice. He went into the temple. He offered a sacrifice on God's people's behalf for the forgiveness of their sins, which showed them that ultimately the basis of their relationship with him, with God, wasn't on trying to be good, trying to keep the law. It was on the grace of God. It was on the forgiveness of God, as it still is today. So... In recognition of this, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Israelites fasted once a year, one day a year, to show they understood that. They understood it was about God's grace to them. The point is, they hadn't understood it. They hadn't understood it. Even the fasting on this day had become just a ritual to them. In the same way that for some people going to church, on a Sunday is a ritual. It's like, oh, this is what we do. There's many people in society, many people today meeting across Fredericton and Canada, maybe even some of you here today. you're here because it's a Sunday morning. It's what we do. There was many people of God's people, the Jews, who fasted on the day of atonement because that's what we do. They'd not understood why. They'd not understood. The grace of God so outwardly they're doing the right things but their hearts haven't changed and so they were angry with God they were saying well we're doing all the right things we're coming, coming before we're to you you are not answering our prayers we're still in this difficult spot we're still in need of healing don't you care God that's what they were saying where are you, God? We're doing this for you, but where have you gone? And that, that sort of mentality can get in. We even heard Betty express it this morning. God, what, what, what's that about? I don't understand. I, I don't understand why I've not been healed. Seemed to be better, than it wasn't. And the bitterness and the anger can come in. And bless her for saying that. But God dealt with it, praise God. God says to his people, you might be seeking me out, you might look as though you are, you might look as though you're keen to know my ways, but your life isn't matching up. You spend a day, a year fasting, but it says even on that day, you're exploiting your workers. You've got workers and people working for you, and you're exploiting them, and then you're at the temple, and you're fasting, your relationships with people aren't good. You see, but even on that day, you're arguing. Well, they're fasting. They're probably, what's the word now, hangry. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, you know, it's, it's like oh, so they're all fighting with each other, even on that day. God says in this passage, this is what I want from you, my people. Spend yourself on the behalf of the hungry. You're hungry for a day. What about the people who are hungry all the time? Satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then you'll see me at work with you. Then you'll receive my presence. Then your healing will appear. Then I will restore you. The people's religious attitudes still go on today. Many people will go to church, say their prayers, do the right things, and get frustrated at God when things go wrong in their life. Or be angry. When God seems to reward and favor those who don't deserve it. But God's saying, Look, you've received grace from me. You don't deserve my forgiveness. You don't deserve me to restore you. So everything you've got's from me. So stop with the self righteous attitude, which only ends up damaging others. Just receive my grace and then show it to others. So even though God called his people to live in this way, to execute and show justice and mercy to people, they were unable to do it. They didn't show God's concern for the stranger and the foreigner among them. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan was so shocking. Because it's like, well, why should we bother with that? But then, but then, Jesus comes and he comes to the synagogue in Nazareth. And we read it in Luke Again, you might want to turn to this. If you don't want to turn, it's on the screen. In Luke 4, Jesus comes and and he says these words. And he's quoting, again, from the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 61, a few chapters later. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is taking some of those same words that are in Isaiah 58 that God's people didn't do. So this is what God wants you to do, but the people didn't do it. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus says the same words. God's spirit is on me. God is bringing good news to the poor. God is saying freedom to the prisoners, setting the oppressed free. And then he says, and it's fulfilled in me. He sits down and he says, now it's going to happen. It didn't happen before, but now it's happening. And then you read on from there in Luke 4, straight away what do we see happening after he said this? We see he's driving out an evil spirit. He's releasing people from bondage. He's healing people. He's delivering people. He sees him doing what he says he's going to do. He's living out what God has always called, He's always been on God's heart, and now it's happening. And he lifts up those who are downcast. And he's doing it in the power of the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, the church, Jesus' body, is to continue with that work. We go on in in that chapter 4. It says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They answered because this was his hometown. People spoke well of Jesus at first. They liked the idea. Well, we all like the idea of justice, especially when it relates to us. And that's what they were thinking. They wanted it for them. Jesus knew that. He says, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. So they've heard, these people have heard what Jesus has been doing. And they've said, well, Jesus, he's he's our boy. He's our boy, but he's going and bringing healing and deliverance and justice in all these other places. But now he's come home. Boys, come home. Do in your hometown what we've heard you doing, that give us justice." And Jesus is saying, no. Because God often brings it to people we don't feel should have it. Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophets accepted in his hometown." I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. It wasn't raining. And there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian who lived, obviously, outside of Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying, God goes out to others. You might be thinking it's all about you, it's all about yourself, but actually it's others. Elijah went out to Zarephath. Well, there was lots of people in famine, but it was the widow in Zarephath who received. There was lots of lepers in Israel within, in the time of Elisha. a Assyrian a Syrian received cleansing. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. You might have read this passage and thought, well, what's going on? Why the change of heart? This is why the change of heart, because Jesus is saying it's, it's not just for you. It's not just for you. It's for those outside. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. When we feel we aren't receiving justice and others are, anger is quickly stirred up. You don't have to look too far afield to see those, even on the news today and looking at at society, you don't have to look too far to see those who feel that they are living as part of God's chosen nation today. I'm not particularly talking about Israel. And are therefore superior to others. You don't have to look far. Yet if we examine our own hearts, often we believe it ourselves. I mean, how many of us have struggled with something in our life and said, but God, why didn't you do something for me? I see you reaching out, God, and and intervening in the lives of others, but what about me? And they don't even deserve it. You don't even know what they get up. Well, God does know, but that's kind of what goes on. Look at all that they do. Jesus encountered it the whole time. Jesus, if you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't be allowing her to come and worship you. It's a self-righteous attitude. We can have it ourselves. We've heard about it very honestly, even this morning. But what about me, God? I don't understand. Oh, forget them all. Forget about it. Don't want anything to do with God. God. We don't even realize that we're the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, which is the main point pretty much of that story. As God's church, we need to search our hearts for the prejudice that might be hidden away because God has called us to do the same thing. His call to us is the same call he's always given to his people. He's calling us to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, the rights of those who are destitute, to speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And maybe, maybe God is asking us to get involved with groups of people among whom we've got no experience. The danger is, like the Israelites, we will be offended by God's call, like Jonah was. That's why he was offended. He didn't think the Ninevites should receive God's mercy and favor. Elijah probably didn't expect to be called to go to a widowed Gentile. Elisha probably didn't expect to go to a leprous Syrian rather than the lepers in Israel. How would we feel? How do we feel if as a church we're called to minister primarily to those among the First Nations communities or to refugees or to Muslims or to prisoners? How do we feel about that? How do we feel about that if we start getting involved? It could get uncomfortable. Back in the UK, many of you'll know I was involved in a big kids' club that we ran in the areas of Sheffield, in where my city, where there was a lot of drug and gun crime, prostitution, violence. We poured a lot of our church resources into it uh, to reach out to people. It was the main area that we put our resources in financially. It was the main area that we had teams going in. But you know what? A number of people would complain. In the church, in the church. Why are we doing so much for these kids? Why aren't we doing as much for our kids? Our kids get the raw end of the deal. What are we doing for them? We, we're just running an hour on a, you know, a few couple of people on a Sunday afternoon, and then you're doing this big thing for them. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Those listening to Jesus spoke well of him until he suggested God was calling him to those outside their community. That's why they were filled with anger. That's why they tried to kill him. The reality is that when God calls people, a church, to reach out to those who are disenfranchised and rejected by society, some people will get angry. Some people will leave. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with a nice, personalized religion. It stirs us up. Maybe I'm stirring you up this morning. If, as a church, we're going to get involved with bringing about God's kingdom through issues of justice, we need to have an understanding of God's grace. If we don't get it, we won't be motivated to do it. We don't get motivated by sentimental stories. Stories are good. Even the story of Kumar, there was a video I could have shown you a video actually. It's a great video explaining Kumar's story, and it, and it's actually well made. I'm not criticizing the video, but we're not motivating people through sentimentality. It's often the way that people are motivated these days. But that's not how God motivates us. Because we might respond and we go, oh yeah, I'll give a few dollars. That'll do. Actually, God wants us to engage. God wants us to engage on a far more deeper level. And we can't engage unless we are motivated because of God's mercy and grace towards us. Otherwise, we won't care. It's at the root of why we care about injustice and seeking to bring God's kingdom. God's grace. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, you'll be blessed by God when you acknowledge that you need him. That's what poor in spirit means. Knowing, realizing, I need God. Realizing that we are spiritually poor. And there's nothing we can do to get out of the mess, the spiritual debt we find ourselves in. But many of us don't think like that. We genuinely don't think that we're too bad a person. We, we genuinely think, we, well, we try our best. We've worked hard to get where we've got to. In other words, we're not poor in spirit. We're middle class in spirit. If we're middle class in spirit, we probably won't care too much about the poor. Or those who suffer injustice will probably think they should help themselves. We'll probably think it's their own fault anyway. We won't be interested in going into their neighborhoods. But if we're poor in spirit, we won't think like that. We'll realize that God came to earth and moved into our neighborhood to rescue us. Even when the hostility, even though the hostility between God and ourselves was our own doing. Paul says in Romans 5, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, We were powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We might look out and say, well, it's their own fault. They should do something about it. Well, they were only going to abuse the things that we give them anyway probably spend it on alcohol, drugs. Oh, it's all going to... While we were still powerless. While we were opposed to God. Christ came. That's where change came. That's what change does. That's what will change others. God in his grace and love reached out to us and now he calls us, his people, to reach out to others who are powerless to show His grace and love to them. We're motivated by that. Many people today are living lives without hope. They're in despair. Their lives are governed by outside forces, maybe an abuser, maybe a slave owner. Maybe it's because of their color of their skin. Their dignity is shattered, but the message of the gospel tells them they're not defined by those outside forces. The gospel tells them they're loved unconditionally They're loved infinitely, no matter what they've achieved or failed to achieve. And we, the church, are those who are called to practically bring that message of grace and hope and justice to those who are in need. We need God's heart for justice woken up in us. We need to see it, that it doesn't stand in opposition to bringing the truth of the gospel to people. Sometimes people think that. Think, oh, we're just getting involved in issues of justice. Surely we should be bringing them the gospel. It is the gospel. That is the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. It's the gospel. At the start, I told you the story of Kumar. Today, Kumar is no longer a slave suffering at the hands of a brutal brick kiln owner. Kumar remembers the day he was rescued in a quick, life-changing turn of events. Actually, it wasn't that quick in reality. It had taken months of careful planning from a group called International Justice Mission, a Christian group who we partner with here, Rick and Bronwyn Mooney, they represent them here in Canada. So IJM and local police investigated what was going on in the brick kiln, and together they infiltrated the kiln, they got video evidence, legal evidence, and they brought Kumar and other slaves to freedom. This boy, who once was terrified to think about his future, suddenly had a chance. IJM counsellors stayed by his side. They promised it was over. He was finally safe. This is real. And the good news sunk in. Kumar was overjoyed. He said, When I heard that somebody's going to release me from here, I felt very happy. I was happy I no longer needed to suffer and that my life was about to change. And since that turning point, everything has changed for Kumar. Today, Kumar's thriving in his freedom. He's a deep thinker. He went to college. He's now working for IJM in Bangalore, India, fighting to bring freedom to those who are enslaved, just as he was. And Kumar is a Christian. He does know God because he experienced the grace of God. You see... The first link in that chain of salvation for Kumar was his real freedom from captivity. And now he's experienced real freedom and spiritual freedom in Christ. So church, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage us, not just you, we're together. I want to encourage us this morning. Let's follow our call in bringing Christ's hope, freedom and justice here in Canada in Fredericton, all around the world to those he chooses. There are many different ways we can do it. Who knows how God will call us to do it? And we'll, I'm sure we'll look at this later on. But let's commit ourselves. This is what we're about. This is part of us bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, I thank you that you didn't leave us in slavery to sin. You didn't leave us in bondage to despair. You didn't leave us in hopelessness and powerlessness. Lord, you moved into our neighborhood. You came. You lived among us. You demonstrated Freedom, as you walked and moved about, people were set free. People were healed. People were delivered. Because God, that's what you're about. Lord, fill us with your spirit again as your church. Let us, as your church, show that same dedication to setting captives free to people wherever they are. Lord, let us be involved in bringing your kingdom here on earth. Let us not turn things around and say, but what about us? Why haven't we received this justice? Oh God, we've received so much from you, so much from you. Lord, we want to show it to others. And we know that as we do that, you will come and you will act. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.